So hello and welcome to the RPG Academy podcast. I am Michael and we are here today to do a review of the Simbaru or Simboro, we'll get to that, core <laughs> rulebook uh, from Free League Press. Joining me today is Tom and Dave. So Tom, say hello to everyone. Let me hear your voice. Yeah. How's it, how's it going, everybody? This is Tom. You hear my voice a lot now. And then Dave, please go ahead and introduce yourself and go ahead and give them a little bit about who you are and what you do, your podcast, all that kind of good stuff. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Thanks for that, Mike. Um, and um, thank you very much for the invite. Uh, it's great to be here. So I'm Dave, Dave C. Mark. I'm one half of uh, the Effect podcast with my co-host, Matthew. We've been podcasting now for very nearly three years. It'll be three years in May this year. And came from a position of um, talking about Use zero engine games, free league games. Um, also, Yen Ringen games, which again we'll come to in a moment because Simbaroon was originally a Yen Ringen uh, game in the, in the first place. But now we have um, two channels. We have our Effect um, podcast and we have our Effect AP channel, which has just started, um, where we're now putting our actual play recordings on there. But we've been working with free league for, for three years Um I was lucky enough, I got writing credit, I did some work on the Alien RPG as a freelancer for them, which is absolutely epic and brilliant. Um, but delighted to be here, I love Simba Room, um, I know the uh, uh, Mateus, Mateus and Martin really well, and so it's delighted to be talking about the game. But I guess there's also a, a slight disclaimer there, um, I know these guys well, I love this game, Um I uh, I might be a bit biased, but um, <laughs> just a little bit. But, just a little uh, bit. Take my comments in that vein. But we wanted an expert as well to fill it, fill in the gaps from Tom and I. We've we've read through the book, but it's a dense book, and that's one of the things I'm going to compliment. It is a very dense book, so I'm sure there's things I missed, I didn't quite grasp, I didn't understand the full weight of. Uh, so you're going to help us with that. So we'll keep you grounded a little bit. But I think overall, we all <laughs> like the book. So it's, I mean, it's still going to be very positive. Um, so we're going to jump into it. We're going to follow the format we've done before for the review. So we're going to go through a few sections of the book. We're going to talk about some stuff. Uh, and at the end, we're going to give it an overall score. Excuse me. Well, at the end, we're going to give it individual scores for certain elements like the layout and art, the fluff, the crunch, and then an overall. But let's start hmm. big picture. And, and I'm going to have to put you on a little bit of a clock because we only have like an hour, an hour and a half. But Dave, if you were going to explain this game to someone, the, the world and the game in one big bundle, what is Simbaru? Simbaru is a fantasy role-playing game, a player-facing game, which means the, uh, the 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 game's master allows the players to make every single dice roll. It's set in uh, Simbaroom, which is all, um, in uh, the Empire of Ambria and the Forest of Davakar. And there are secrets, there are treasures. The forest is a dangerous place to go. And the story is very much um, about... Uh, the, the the spirits and the gods of the forest fighting back against the people who are trying to consume and exploit it. Okay, uh, that was succinct just... and, and good <laughs> good job. Be and then before we go any further, I'd also like to ask Dave, can you explain a little bit, because you kind of mentioned it, there's this aspect of Yin Ringen creating the game, and now it's owned by Free League press can you give us a little bit of that before we really dive in what's a, can you give us a little bit of that history right there about how this game came to be yeah sure absolutely so um Simbaroom was as, as i said at the start um the company that started it um created it was called yen ringen which is swedish for the iron ring 
And that was uh, Matthias Lilia, uh, Matthias Jonsson Hacker, and Martin Grip, who at the time was called Martin Bergstrom. Um, and they are all now members of Free League following the merger last year. But the three of them um, established Simbarum. It was first published in Sweden in 2013, I think. It was then published in English and a number of other languages in 2016. But it was their baby. They were the ones who were um, who devised it, who, who built it up. They were inspired by a Studio uh, Ghibli movie called Princess Mononoke, which is a uh, it's a classic Japanese anime movie of the late 90s, which gave them the idea for this whole environment versus exploitation kind of uh, element to to the game. And then last summer, obviously, um, Yenringen and uh, Free Aligan decided to merge. Uh, they joined forces, which was very much a coming back together because they've all known each other. Back in the day, um, Yenringen had started Coriolis. So if you're familiar with the game Coriolis from Free League, um, Yenringen started that. They then stopped working. This is going back to 2005 or six, something like that. But the Free League guys who are there today were fans fanboys of Coriolis so they took it on and they kept it going and then a few years later uh, Matthias Matthias and Martin decided that having a life without making games was really boring so they came <laughs> so they came back to it and uh, and then Simbarum came on from there I should mention I guess I probably should have missed at the top that even though it was five years ago I did get a free copy of the book uh, Matthias, I think the one in the middle, um, sent me this book back in 2015 when it first came out. And we have a, a trial that we did where Scott ran the game for us. Normally we try to get someone from the development team to run our games when we do trials because of the time difference, we weren't ever able to line that up. So Scott ended up running the adventure that's in the back of the book. I, I read the adventure today. So I realized he only ran part of it. We cut off the third part, which is the more expansive, uh, so we've kind of sort of reviewed this book way back then, but not into the depth that we're going to do today. But just in, you know, in uh, being free and clear, I did get a free copy of the book to review five years ago. <laughs> <laughs> but I also got a free copy of the book when Free League let everybody have a free copy of the book a couple months ago. <laughs> so there's that. So I'm the only person here who didn't get a free copy of the book. That's not right. <laughs> that is not right. You should complain. So, you know, I think we should, I mean, that's a good overview of Dave, and I think it's time to now jump into this book. And this opening of the book is, it opens up with the chapter, so the Welcome to Simbrum. This is a very, you know, we all know this chapter in RPG books. This is the chapter that's going to introduce us to the world. And so it's very interesting, as Dave kind of alluded to, this is a very, it's a dark world that is all about cultures and then what is mankind and doing to nature and so the whole premise of this is that there is this kingdom that has been forced to migrate out of their land and now that they have entered into this this new this new region called um corinthia and this is where the davakar forest is and all these new cultures that this this community is now being a part of and in some way oppressing them. So the, this first chapter, it goes through the timeline of where, how things started and then where we are currently in this book. 
you have your you've got your map of the of Ambria and Davakar, and then a little bit about the different cultures and their spirituality, and then where all these cultures are the conflicts. So this is a just the the introductory chapter here. And I will say this, the one thing that really stuck out to me here before I turn it over to you all is that there is a timeline in this book and more RPGs should include a timeline because this provided me a frame of reference for where everything lands in this book. And this timeline is not this massive timeline. It's almost comical. It starts a thousand years in the past and then it's 500 years, 200 years, and then it gets super granular and it's just like <laughs> 21 years ago. And then it's just, so they're just like the world of the, the Symbarium crumbles into oblivion. Here we are today. And so it, if it allows you to fill in all these gaps, but it gives you an idea of where the current culture sits. So. And there's a key element, I think, in that, which is the mystery around Simbarum and what it was and why did it collapse so rapidly and brutally, which is, is the, the key mystery of, of the game. Um, and having a timeline that doesn't give you all of that information, uh, you know, they leave it to you to decide what that might be later on, I think. Absolutely. It kind of gives you the timeline, gives you the areas what you may be playing. So it's, I, I love that whole idea. I love, I'm somebody who runs sandbox games. I love being able to get my players input and this is great. It gives me just enough, but man, did I want more, so much more and it did not give it to me. Uh, so I'll be maybe the lone voice of a little bit of dissent is that I had a hard time getting through that first section. Oh, really? It's okay. so dense. It's like reading a history book because that's what it is. It's the history of the world. And it's it's dry. It's informative. It definitely leaves holes, which are interesting. But I it was the hardest part for me to read was the first section, which is, mm. you know, sometimes like if, if you're just picking up a book for the first time, just I'll let people know that it gets easier. It gets into more chunks, but that first section is really dense and I found hard to get through. It is. And it's, I love it so much. It's like the opening scene in Lord of the Rings when they're like, they're like so many years ago, nine rings were four. And it is, and it shows that's what it is. It's this very, um, it's exposition about where the world sits and where we are now. Yeah. I think for some people, um, and I, I, I probably include myself as one of them, I I always, when I get a new book, I just skim read those sections because I I want the kind of the broad strokes. And then usually I'll go and set my own game in that world somewhere kind of in the wings off the screen slightly because um, I, I, I enjoy creating my own stuff rather than run, running the, the, the material that's in the book usually. And that's um, what you all did in your actual play, correct? Yes, absolutely, yeah. So I, I created a, a new town called Granite Hold, which is a bit further north from um, Karos Fen on the eastern side. And I set, I set it there just because I didn't want to, um, I guess, beholden to someone saying, well, in the book, it says that, and actually, mm. <laughs> you've done it like this. <laughs> I think this is, this is, a, this is a, a, a long hangover from playing D&D when I was a kid, where that was what always happened. So I think I try and get away from that, even even now, 30 or 40 years later. I think Michael can attest to that, too, because he has openly said he is not one that is about lore and diving into that. So, <sighs> But speaking of lore, there's the next section, which is the factions. Yeah, this is the factions. And again, I'm not going to try to go into too much depth because I just, you know, there's too much of it. But 
Um, there are several different factions that are going to be useful to the DM running the game or the GM running the game. And your players will probably either need to become an ally with one or the other or potentially become enemies with one or the other. And that can be as big or small of an element that you want. Uh, so one of the factions is basically the the, the kingdom itself, though it's it's a queendom, I guess, <laughs> uh, Queen Corinthia, who has a very cool and kick-ass backstory. Uh, and, and I guess I shall start with this. What I do love about this section is every section that I read gave me an idea for a story. Mm. Like every single snippet, because it's broke down into little, like little paragraphs, like you know, this faction, this faction, this faction. Everyone I read was full of flavor that I thought, okay, I can make a story out of this. I can make a story out of this, or this would be a great scene. And that's what I really look for in these types of parts of the book is, is it inspiring me? And I was absolutely inspired. Mm-hmm. Oh, so basically the queen appoints dukes and then the dukes appoint counts and baronies. So there's like 12 or 13 different duchies. I'm probably messing up the numbers, but so there's, there's this sort of hierarchy, hierarchy, uh, and they all don't get along. Like there's, hmm. so it's not like the the queendom is one solid whole that you can use against whatever. Uh, some of them don't like each other. There's some political uh, machinations between them. There's an uncle who's disgruntled because he wanted to become king, but he didn't because hmm. Corinthia became queen. And then the queen's mother remarried and had a daughter. So there's this like stepsister that could become the queen if the queen dies. And there's also a theory that the queen is dead and it's an imposter on the throne because she wears a mask all the time. <laughs> I loved all of that. Then you also have the barbarian clan. So when the Ambrians came to this land, uh, they were the refugees, the invaders, if you would. The barbarian clans were already here, and obviously that caused conflict. Originally, there were 13 barbarian clans. Now there's 11, because two of them, uh, one has been destroyed and one, I think, was assimilated. Uh, but there's rumor of a 12th clan that might be forming. The clans don't always get along together. They have very wildly disparate beliefs and, and uh, cultures, and they, they can conflict with each other. Then you have the church. Uh, the Church of Prios, which is the sun god. So you have basically sort of like a pope. It's called the First Father, but you have a pope. Uh, then you have the militant arm of the church, which are the Knights of the Dying Sons, or basically the Templars. In fact, they think they're even called the Templars at some point. Yeah. And then so. you have the Twilight Friars. Um, don't remember a lot about them, but that's another section to talk about. <laughs> uh, then you have the Magic College, the Ordo Magica. They have their own re- uh, rules and realms and things they're trying to accomplish. Uh, you have the Queen's Army. And then finally, you have the Iron Pact, which may or may not exist. Everything I read, I was like, okay, I could use that. I could use that. I could use that. I loved, I loved the faction section. I think that's one of the things that the, the Free League guys and the Yen Ringen guys do really well. I think it's um, very focused on um, providing story hooks and giving you ambiguity and giving you conflict in that background. And I think you see this across... You know all of their games, but uh, Simbarum is a great example of one where it's it's just crying out for that kind of thing because it is very similar to a medieval War of the Roses uh, kind of um, dynastic infighting kind of political game. Yeah, there is so many different plot hooks that you can take here in getting these factions to to butt up against each other. And I will say this, Michael, you glanced over the twilight friars which are actually my favorite in this because as a lot of people know i 
love like very edge lordy dark very moody games and obviously simbrum is that is why i love this game so much but the ordo magica they're basically like religious assassins and it's just so cool like when the templars it's like the templars are using their swords and i think the quote in the book is that the black cloaks use their knives and it's just i ate that stuff up loved it there was definitely um just to compare it to what a lot of people would have a cultural touchstone game of thrones where you have the different houses but then you also have the different realms you have uh, the barbarian clans are in game of thrones as well except in game of thrones generally speaking all of the houses were were united it, they had a very strong figurehead most of them and they worked as a whole and in this, it's like Game of Thrones, except every house is also fighting each other, <laughs> uh, sometimes openly, often secretively. Uh, but yeah, really like the faction section. The other thing I think needs to be said here, um, just because I do think it's important, is there are a, l- a lot of elements in this game that deal with colonialism. So the whole idea that the Ambrians, they did come in to the barbarians' territory. And for better or worse, they did take them over and there is a lot of themes in this game and i don't know if they're all addressed in the 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 best possible way but it's there's so there's all it's there's a strong colonialism theme in this book that i just think needs to be said and it's not i think this goes back to the whole idea of simrum is a game about the clash of cultures and the class of nature so i do think it's important and i do they do talk about this, though, in the book, that it is something the Ambrians doing. And by no means does this book talk about the Ambrians as they are some sort of holy country coming to bring the good news to these the, these barbarians. No, the Ambrians, they say, there's some very bad problematic elements about them. And the book does address that, though. So I just wanted to bring that up. All right. Yeah, I think the other thing that, uh, that you haven't mentioned there is um, the, the, uh, the, sort of the lingering... And uh, always slightly distant elvish presence, which uh, is 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 always there, but it's 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 away in the forest. It's in in Davakar Forest, where where they they kind of um, uh, where they reside, and they they very rarely come out and uh, and associate with either the barbarians or the Ambrians. But I think it's an interesting point about the Ambrians in that um, they they were. They were kind of a mix of refugees and an invading army, in that they were they were coming because they had to, um, but also because um, you know it wasn't all conquest. Some of some of it was um, done in negotiation with the barbarians, as you say. Some of the barbarians may have even been assimilated into Ambrian society, but there's still always that that leaves that tension. You know, all that settled down a little bit, but the tension between the Ambrians and uh, and the Barbarians is always simmering just under the surface. Yeah, it's very complex, and I, I appreciate it that it's not simple, but they lay it out so that you can use it. And mm. I think, Dave, you kind of, that's a, a great kind of transition point to, you mentioned the elves in Davakar, because mm. that's the next section. And that is the most mysterious and most hard to understand section. So we want you to tell us about this section. Uh, I'm happy to tell you about it. I might not reveal any 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 great insight, so you know, you know bear bear that in mind. Um, Davakar Forest. The 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 key thing about this game is the um, 
the the mystery and the the uh, unexplored frontiers that is Davakar, and the forest is Simbroom pretty much. Uh, it, it, it's described either as bright or as dark, and that's based on very very simply how much light gets through the canopy and how dense the forest is. You would think in the bright forest that would be it would be nice it would be pleasant but no it's still deadly dangerous there even though it's lush it's verdant it's very fertile plenty of plants to gather and lots of lots of games to hunt um and there are elves roaming in that but again they'll only be seen if they want to be seen um occasionally they will quite happily take pot shots at travelers in the bright forest for fun it seems yes. um and there are some simba room ruins in that area but because it's more, it's been better travelled, because it's easier, even though it's not easy to travel in that, those Simbar ruins are largely picked over. And one of the things that draws people into the forest is the promise of treasure and the promise of finding out what happened to uh, the old civilization. Yeah, the, it's, a, it's, it's, very, it's very interesting in that they, we, we haven't really talked about, there's this whole idea of this this ancient civilization of Simbar that disappeared mysteriously and they used to occupy the land of Davakar. And the yeah. book doesn't go into de- details about what happened to them. That's up for you to come up with in your game. And there are the ruins and the, the treasure that's in this forest. This forest is not a nice place <laughs> at all. And it talks about that. So yeah, it, it reminds me of the Mornland from Eberron is it's basically this big pervasive space where tragedy at some point has struck and it's full of mystery, but it's extremely deadly, but it draws adventurers. It draws people desperate. And this is where they're probably going to go. And they're probably going to die because Simpurum is a very dark and dreary <laughs> world. Uh, and actually as a whole, and I, I don't know how well this fits, but the way I would describe it is it's basically Conan meets Eberron. <laughs> is there's this sort of very much like you know witches and sun gods and dark you know evil forest, but there's all these political machinations and forces conspiring against each other. So I don't know that's a great analogy, but that's what comes to mind if I try to 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 drill it down into two things people might be more familiar with. Mm. I think the great thing is though that the the witches and the um, you know the what you would immediately assume were the the bad guys in this often aren't. So witchcraft is a school of magic and it's an entirely legitimate school of magic you don't have to be a bad witch um so it's uh you know there's that sort of it's not all black and white there's it's it's great big loads and loads of shades of gray um getting blacker i guess the deeper you get into the forest <laughs> but um no I, yeah i mean the witches i mean we see them yeah that's the other thing it's everything within this game can be on either end of the scale, like the the barbarians mm. tree, which is like they are political figureheads. These are people making decisions for the betterment of the clans, and I thought that was really cool. Mm. But the other thing, which we haven't mentioned at all, I don't think we have, which I'm going to bring up right now, is the art in this book. It all has mm. a very singular style, and this was done by Martin, correct, Dave? So Martin Grip, who was when Simbroom first came out, was, uh, his surname was Bergstrom, but he changed it to, to Grip for various reasons. Um, he's done all the artwork for this. And the uh, the f- I got into Simbaroom purely because I saw the artwork. And I saw the artwork and I thought, that looks brilliant. 
and then I bought the book on the strength of the artwork. And Martin is, just as an aside, the nicest guy you could ever meet. He's just so modest and brilliant. He's obviously done all the artwork for, or the vast majority of the artwork for Alien, as well as um, lots of others. So he's a full member of the Free League um, but now. But yeah, the artwork is just so evocative. Um, yeah. Yeah, the artwork's amazing. The one of the reasons I wanted to bring this up, because I think it communicates a lot of what you're sm- supposed to feel about mm. Davakar. It's very, the artwork is very dark and misty and foggy and uses a lot of silhouettes instead of details. And yeah. it's in this painted style. It's painted and like there is the, the artwork in the Davakar section right here. It just shows a lone writer looking over this valley of mist. Yeah. And it's nothing necessarily like fantasy qual this looks like a piece of art that you could hang on your wall in your mm. mansion like that's how it just has that feel to it and i absolutely love it it makes yeah. the world feel big and the people in it small there's an interesting little um anecdote when i when i first met martin um back in 2017 i think it would have been um i said something very similar to him praising his artwork and about how much i loved the the misty grainy backgrounds and he went, well, that's good, because I only do that because I'm lazy and I don't want to fill in the detail. <laughs> <laughs> he might not appreciate me telling that one, but um, it, it, it is it is just brilliant, brilliant artwork, yeah. Yes, it is. It's so good. And so with that said, I think we can jump over to the next section, which is... Well, there was, sorry, there was one last thing I was going to mention, which actually is um, me not saying something that... I would perhaps do slightly differently. So one of the things about the forest is if you're an Ambrian explorer and you want to go into the forest, you have to get yourself a license. Now you have to go and buy that from the queen's representative and that's all fine. I, I, I I like that. It's okay. Um, You have to spend a bit more extra money up front to go immediately two things come to mind is one what happens if you go into the forest without a license because you're probably just going to die anyway um and secondly maybe there could be something a bit more interesting about how you acquire a license maybe getting the license is an adventure in itself and you should you you know you're tested in some way so as a gm if i was going to be running that i would probably have there being some form of test to qualify to get that license rather than just them buying um selling off licenses and and sending poor unfortunates off to their deaths the yeah the queen just doesn't want the workforce going into the forest and all dying she needs to make <laughs> sure that the the right people are going that's a mm. good point to bring up but that was the last point i wanted to make on on Davica. No, I think it's a good point because that kind of ties into Thistlehold, which is Thistlehold is where one of these places where you can buy the li- buy one of these licenses. And Thistlehold is it is the city that sits. It's the Ambrian city that sits on the edge of the Davakar Forest. It is typically, at least the way the game book describes it, it's one of the last places your characters will go in civilization before they venture into this unknown region. And it may not, it's the place where you're going to have your last meal, you know, but what this will hold is it is a, it's a city that is basically owned, but by a mayor and who is an ex-adventurer and took advantage of a situation when all of the Ambrian army was first coming in and now is in charge of Thistlehold, which is this vast wooden city that sits on the edge and with all sorts of very gritty 
things happening. So there are adventurers buying stuff. There's, there's bars, there's antiques that are being sold and dark dealings being made and all sorts of weird stuff going on. But I would describe it reading this. It is, it, it is capitalism, the city, like the strong, <laughs> the strong survive within Thistlehold. And there are the less fortunate, they're going to get trampled and they're going to be sent out. You can't even come into the city without having a right of passage or pain to come into the city. The town is, there's all sorts of great spots to start adventurers here. And the, this section also, which I absolutely love, there, it leaves out a lot of detail, which we've already said, and a lot of other things in this book do the same. But what it does include, it includes just enough about these various interesting locations where you can put players, but then also, instead of including, like, who Mayor, who, who Mayor Night Pitch is in a very detailed section of him, it includes sections about the most unimportant NPCs <laughs> and what they want, which I think is really cool because yeah. it makes the city feel more alive and not just important people who are here. It gives you the actual things that people that you're probably going to interact with as ad, as adventurers. And it's very cool. It's just like one of the things is there's a young, very enthusiastic missionary for the church and you can interact with him. There is a, there's like, there's a goblin and a, a guard with a limp and there's all these different things. And so I really did. I really did. I, I, I like this book. I mean, this section, it's very, um, where it gives me some vibes of like some Assassin's Creed with some of the imagery with scaffolding everywhere. And it's, it's, it's super cool. So anyway, what would you all think about this? Or what, what do you have to say about this whole hold? Well, I, 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 for one, um, I love this hold. As, as a GM coming to it, it felt too big for me, which is why I went and created a smaller version, which is, which, which is granite hold for my, for my game, which is uh, on the actual play. But I think one of the things that you pull out there is focusing on a few of the little people, because there, 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 there can be two types of games. If you're going to be playing in a game where your characters are rubbing shoulders with the mayor, or talking to dukes and counts, or even somewhere within the realms of of the the high courtly level of society, that sets you on a very very uh, uh, very um, specific path of being in that kind of society, and you behave in a certain way in that kind of society. Whereas actually, the vast majority of players, if they're playing an adventurer who wants to go and do a bit of treasure hunting, they're going to be at the other end of society, and they've worked their way up through you know, fights on the street and eking their, eking their living. And they're going to be dealing with those kinds of people rather than the nobility and the, the, the high society element. So I really like that. I think it's, it's, a, it's a really good way of making sure you can focus your scenario and have stuff uh, ready to go for the guy who's just, you know, who's lived on the street all his life. And, and of course, to bring it back just to Eberron, just because that's my touchstone for everything, it's a lot like Stormreach on the continent of Zendrick. It's the foothold into this great, vast, you know, wilderness that needs to be explored, uh, which is a a plus for me. Mm -hmm. uh, so the next uh, settlement that is covered in the book is uh, Yandros or Yandros, which is like the capital city of the new Amrian kingdom. Uh, there's a quote in there that I like. It says, Yandros is a city of great... Um, contradictions and just like the newly constructed buildings along the muddy banks of dodrum she is constantly balancing on the verge of collapse 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so it gives some facts and figures. There's like about r- roughly a hundred thousand population. There's a, a, a constant influx of new refugees, some of which are assimilated into that population. Others are sent out to other, um, you know, places to live. Basically, they they can't take everybody, but they farm off where they need to go. It's broken down into a bunch of different districts. Each district has a description of it. And again, kind of like Thomas talking, there's NPCs and there's points of interest in each one. Includes the palace district, which is where obviously the queen would live. Harbor, where freight comes in. Artisans. uh, The temple district and all the way down to uh, the refugee camps. Uh, The thing that stuck out to me most is the eternal executioner. (laughs) It does exactly fit everything else was just that that area but essentially this gigantic creature slash dude i'm guessing is an ogre maybe but they think could be a troll wears a mask shows up one day and says hey i want to see the queen uh there was some conflict here which involved several other people dying it sounds like and eventually this thing got to see the queen and offered its service to be the executioner for the realm and has served in that post ever since and the axe that this creature carries has basically become the symbol of justice for the realm. It's just like this weird sort of anecdote, but it's so ripe with what this world is. This is the kind of place where some giant hulking creature shows up and says, I want to be your executioner. And after killing a few people, <laughs> sure, okay, you're the executioner now. But it's also not all, we talked about a lot of the grim elements, but then there's also elements like the dance academy. That they mentioned how there's like these <laughs> these the whole idea of these two different cultures with two different styles of dance are like competing within the city. So Yendros is this cap. There's a lot of stuff as far as like these cultural m- touch points that you can dive into, which is cool because there's all sorts of different ways to run a Simbrum campaign. You can do the assassins or diving into the forest, or you can do you know. The dueling dance academies. So there's these different. It's it's this very interesting back and forth. So I love that this yeah, section I, of the intro is about the I, different cultures. Sort of like what you're talking about. This will hold is I feel like this is sort of like a different type of adventure. The the type of characters that want to exist in this world feel to me fundamentally different than the type of characters that would go into Devakar Forest. But potentially, I could see this as if you're running like a campaign. Maybe each player has two characters, one of which is part of society, and their job is to navigate the political landscape to get access to the Devakar Forest, to get resources mm-hmm. for their adventurers. And then your adventurers go off, and whatever treasures they bring back are then, you know, part of that goes back to your political side. And so you have this dual campaign. Maybe different characters, maybe different groups, or maybe the same group with different characters, where they are they're feeding off of each other. The more successful the political side is, the more resources you have to go into Davikar, the more you bring back from Davikar, the more prominent they can rise in society. Rather than having the same character do both, which doesn't fit me to me, mm. I think that could be a very interesting way to apply that. I think that's a great idea, actually. Uh yeah, the, the the idea is almost you know which is your primary character so is is your patron who's the the up and coming noble the, the primary character and then when you, uh, you 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 get permission for your other character and his mates to go into the forest but then they never return so you then go back to the patron who's <laughs> then got to recruit a new guy to get the new character i i love that idea um i'm going to nick that i'm going to run it at some point <laughs> 
feel free. I'd love to hear how it goes. No, that's it's it's one of those things where I will say this. I would probably, if I'm going to run Simrim, I'm probably never going to go to this city just because I'm not a massive fan of big cities. And I think for me, the more interesting elements of this game are the Davakar Forest mm. and this whole. So, so what, I think that's a fair comments. point. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. All right. So now we're on to what was it Carvosti? Yeah, Car- yeah, Carvosti's interesting. So, um, just taking your point there, Tom, about basing a, a campaign in this game, you know, in in Indoros or or not. Carvosti is a um, it's a small plateau in the southwest of the Bright Davakar near Lake Volgoma, and it's it's obviously been there for a very long time. It's not very big. It's only about one kilometer by four hundred meters. And it's been settled by barbarians for a very long time. And looking through it, it, it immediately struck me as a excellent place to um, to base your group of characters. Um, if you you know, it's in the forest, so you know you want to be exploring. But actually, it's a bit bigger. There, so there are things that can go on there, and there is a history to it. So as I said, it's been um, uh, settled by barbarians for centuries, and then a little while ago. The um, some people from the Church of Prios turned up there uh, exploring, and there's a temple there, an old ruined temple, and they found in that temple a symbol of the sun. So they immediately assumed that this was part of their religion and, and something that they had to revere. Naturally enough, that led to a bit of fighting. There was quite a battle over this. Nobody really won, and in the end, the barbarians and the Church of the Sun negotiated a, a a very uneasy peace and they were allowed to stay and they built a shrine called the, the the shrine of the setting sun to this temple and 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 they all live there now sort of cheek by jowl still controlled by the barbarians but allowing um ambrians and pilgrims to come and visit this what is now a very holy site for them but this plateau also wasn't wasn't um Entirely deserted before the before the, the the barbarians even arrived, because there is a um, a grove um, of a creature called um, I forget my pronunciation right, um, Alona or Alina, and this is a a creature that ignores everything else around it. Uh, they don't quite know what it's doing. Um, it's sitting in its grove, minding its own business. It, it's kind of a ten foot tall, female behorned being, and there's a mystery around it so it doesn't really interact with them it doesn't react to them if they don't bother it too much but what is it doing there what's going on and for me this is a a nice relatively small setting that as a gm is really attractive because i like a setting that i think you can um you know the cities can feel too big this a whole might even feel too big for me personally as a gm but uh this is a really good uh a really good size and um you know a a simpler canvas for a GM to, to set a game against, I think. Yeah, it's it's super cool here. Also, the the whole idea of it is an island within the, mm. the the forest of Davakar. It is a place where your players may be able to find refuge in the. And it is a this is a civilized. This is a community here on here. This isn't just some like camp. This is their yeah. this is their home, the capital of the. Of the barbarians, but like you said, it still has the. It still feels kind of small and intimate. And the uh, the um, Elena 
being is so cool. It reminds <laughs> me of this, almost like this eldritch being that is just there in the artwork at the beginning of this section is just so haunting mm-hmm. showing showing her as they offer some bull to it and it is it, it's very cool yeah i love i love i love it it's uh yeah the All other right. oh go ahead michael no no you go i was also gonna say i love the whole idea of they they start talking about the barbarian culture here a little bit there are these things called wrath guards mm. which are the basically the barbarian chieftains like elite unit and there's only nine of them one from each clan and it just the story elements there are so cool and like once again i love these very it's just such a cool thing the whole idea of elite warriors and it's very cool all right, so so we've talked so far. We've been going for like over half an hour just on the world because I think that is the selling point of this game. Frankly, it is. So now that we're going to transition into more of like the actual mechanics and rules of the game, and as players, how you would interact with this world through your characters, uh, and I think we have you first, Dave, with just sort of an overview of the player's guide section. Like, what are we going to see in it, and then we're going to break down those elements a little bit more in detail. Yeah, sure. Um, so the I think the player's guide, certainly the, the introduction to it is really nicely laid out. And it's something that, again, Free League and um, Yen Ring tend to do really well, I think, which is really helpful um, box text, giving you a little bit of a tip or, or, or some hints to stuff. Um, it's going to, so, so, so the player's guide is going to cover all the things you would expect. So it's going to look at what archetypes you can play, what races you might be, how your attributes work which, uh, again, I really like in this setting. Um, It's very flexible. What other traits and abilities might you have uh, as part of those? And what's the magic? What's the mystical tradition around um, in in Simbaroon? Um, It also talks a bit about your player's shadow, which is something that becomes important when we talk about corruption, maybe a little bit later on. And the, the shadow, it's a mystical shadow that some creatures and mystics can sometimes detect and it tells a lot about you and where you're coming from and what your bond to the world is is that bond a civilization bond is it one that's bonding with with the wildness of nature or are you bonding most closely with the corruption of darkness and obviously corruption is a bad thing and if you are if you are corrupt you might not want others to know that um but yeah, so those are the kind of things that uh, that we're going to be talking about um, for the player's guide. All right, very cool. So Tom, I think you have the first section. Yeah, the first section, it goes into archetypes and attributes. And this is where we really start to get into the crunch of this game. The archetypes of this game is Simbrum, at the end of the day, I would argue, is a classless system. There are no classes that you are traditionally, you would traditionally associate with Dungeons and Dragons or some other typical D20 system. So what this uses instead is archetypes. Archetypes are the whole idea of what do you want your character to do in this world? Do you want your character to be a duelist or a captain or a witch? And these archetypes are broken down even further into three different sections of archetypes. You have uh, its martial archetypes, mystic archetypes, and then rogues. And so what these are, they remind me of if you've ever picked up a old video game guide of like an RPG, what they would typically do is like if you ever played any of the Elder Scrolls Oblivion or Skyrim, Ooh, they would yeah. include, yeah, exactly. So the video game guides would include 
these different archetypes. Like if you wanted to play a battle mage or if you wanted to play an assassin, it would say, these are the skills that you need to take or these are the powers that you want. And this does something very similar. What it does is, oh, you want to play a knight. Okay, that means you want to put 13 into your strong. You want to put an 11 into your quick. And then you want to take these abilities in order. And that's going to give you the feel of playing a knight. And so it doesn't necessarily lock you in to anything. You have this freedom and flexibility, but what these do is they offer suggestions and really cool art too. For almost every single archetype, it includes a piece of art to really show you mm-hmm. this is what this is. And I loved that. Well, and along with that is this game, you have a you basically have a point buy for character creation. You're given a set number of points and you choose the things that you want rather than like a D&D where you start with the framework of a fighter, a fighter equals this, 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 and this, and then you make a few more choices. You can build your character from ground up to be whatever you want, or as diverse as you want. You could take a mystic art type and then lean into to martial abilities if you wanted to. Uh, that's totally your choice. Yeah, so what it does is instead of, that's the next thing, which is attributes. And what this is, is this is a D20 roll under system, which means that you roll the D20 and it's all player facing. You roll the D20 and you just want to roll below your attribute. So these attributes are things like accurate, cunning, discreet, persuasive, quick, resolute, strong, and vigilant. So you'll have a number in there from like 5 to 15, 5 obviously being a bad and 15 being good because it's easier when you roll that d20. It's a lot easier to roll under 15 than it is to roll under five. So it's all player facing. So, which I love. There's not like difficulty challenges or class things that I need to know as a dungeon master. It's just like, okay, you're trying to be accurate. And so you roll your dice, look at your character sheet. Is it below? All right, you succeed. So it it would it gives its it lends itself to a very quick style of play, and I absolutely love that. It just makes it the whole idea of just rolling under instead of rolling above some sort of skill just takes so much of the work off of my shoulders as the game master because I have so much work I already need to do. You know, letting the players handle their roles and everything, I love that idea. The one other thing I wanted to point out about attributes before I turn it over to you all is that you really don't ever increase them. Well, you can. In my section, I'll talk about that. Okay, yeah. (laughs) Well, the one thing I I was just going to mention is that what you didn't cover there is when you have uh, like two players conflicting with each other. So, like, to hit you, I might use accurate, but because I'm trying to hit you or your character, you get to modify my number based off of your defense or your quick, depending on how we're interacting. Uh, So let's say I'm trying to shoot an arrow. That would be an accurate. I would roll under my number. I succeed. If I'm trying to hit a moving target, like a a duck, or just like somebody throws something like a contest, like here's a plate, you're going to pull, like shoot like clay pigeon. Then because that thing is small and moving, that I might have a modifier to that number and say, okay, well, normally you need under a 12, but now because of this, you need under a seven. Um, so, so things like, um, if someone's attacking me, uh, I roll defense. If I'm the player, the GM doesn't roll to see if the ogre hits me. I roll defense to see if I can dodge, but my defense roll will be modified by the attack strength 
of the creature that's attacking me. And, and so it's still very quick, but there is a way to modify those numbers. Yeah, I really like the way the attributes work in this, because as you say, for a GM, it's very quick. It, it does give you that uh, that modification for the for the opposed role there. Um, also, it's because there's there's eight of them. If you're faced with a uh, with a task that is a bit unusual or unique, doesn't automatically fit or something, you just have a quick look across the list and see which one you think is most appropriate, and bang away you go. You've got a role ready to make for your player. Um, I will just say that I having having run this quite a bit, I don't really like the player facing element of it. Only because I love rolling dice. Mm-hmm. So as a GM, I felt, I felt more, um, more of a, um, a narrator, um, helping the story along for the players rather than a player. Mm. Um, and my, my co-host Matthew and I have a lot of conversations about the GM's a player too. Yeah. The GM's a player too. Where, um, so, so I think for me, I prefer to, one, have a bit more direct involvement in that sense as a GM. So let's roll some dice. Obviously, there are times, I think, where you don't want to roll too many. Um, but, but secondly, sometimes I like to let the, my dice decide what's happening. Um, and obviously you can, you can do that if the player's rolling the dice, because then the, you know, the dice makes the decision. But, um, so I, yeah, I'm, I'm not the hugest fan of player facing in that sense, in the way it works I- here. I would agree with you. I like rolling dice as well. I, <laughs> I get the the benefits of having a player facing, like I've run Cypher System a few times, and it does free up a lot of just mind space for me to mm. focus on how to narrate this, how to make this cool. But at the end of the day, I like to roll dice too. I think that's part of the process for me, so I enjoy it. It's funny because this is one of the things that I am different than both of you, and I'm different than a lot of people. I, I could care less about the dice <laughs> um, because I'm actually even playing a card-based game right now that we've been playing for two years, so I don't roll a whole lot of dice right now anyway. <laughs> So for me, just like my players know, a good session for Tom is when he doesn't get to roll any dice and he just gets to talk at them. Like, <laughs> but anyway, that's that. So but I, 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 I think I there's also it. there's also an element of tension in um, having the player roll the dice that might mean they get squashed, or okay. having having the GM roll the dice in front of them that means they might get squashed. And some players like it one way or the other some players don't like to roll the dice themselves if they're about to die uh, or they think they might be about to die so i think there's an element there of what your players prefer as well yeah it's never my fault as the game master that you just <laughs> right. died it's your fault <laughs> so yeah, exactly. one thing i wanted to mention about the system because uh, i remember vividly the trial that we played of this and i will link in our on the notes to this episode the trial we did and then we did a review episode of the trial and i'll also link the podcast that you're part of dave cool uh, thank so you people can check those out but one of the things i remember saying is that i felt like rolling under makes more sense for this game than any other game that i have played that rolls under because Symbarum is a fast dark world and you want to be small you don't want <laughs> to be seen so the idea of rolling a one being the best outcome <laughs> yeah, yeah. versus rolling a 20 it feels very different at the table, and I think it fits exactly what this world is going for. Yeah. So ideally, like when I roll dice, I want to get 20s. Like That's what I'm, I'm excited for. But in this game, I love the, psych- the psych- psychological element of, no, you want to be small, because yeah. that's your benefit. It's the difference between going, ta-da, and going, phew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Yeah. 
Very true. All right. All right. So we jump into the to the races. Um, and again, I know a lot of games now go towards ancestry because races can have some connotations, but that's what this book does. That's what we're going to say. Uh, and basically, there's four playable races in the core book. You have your humans, which is broken into two categories. You have your Ambrian and you have your Barbarian. And really, the only difference between them, other than role-playing culture, is they start with certain traits. Uh, so the Ambrian can either start with the contract, or excuse me, contact trait, or the privilege trait. And if you play the Barbarian, you get the bushcraft trait. Uh, you also have changelings, and the changeling story here is very similar to what I'm familiar with from myth. Also, if you play Shadow of the Demon Lord, essentially elves have been known to steal children, and in their place they leave a changeling, which is essentially like a bundle of sticks that have been animated, to impersonate the child. But as it grows, it reveals itself to be not a human child, but it's also not an elf either. It's kind of this weird mixture. And generally, when it becomes known that this is a changeling, it's kicked out of the human home because they don't want it. It's not welcome back in elf society. So it's sort of its own unique thing. And they have the ability to mimic people and basically shapeshift, though it's a trait that's optional. You can play a changeling that doesn't actually shapeshift, but you are allowed to buy that trait if you want. But they're also sort of like a weird outcast uh, in society. Then you have ogres, which are really kind of cool. Uh, basically, ogres have no memory of who they are or how they came to be. So I'm sure there's some lore in Davikar, either in the book or each GM makes up their own on how something becomes an ogre. But eventually these things just kind of wander out into the world. They don't know who they are. And they get adopted and given personality and given names and given jobs. So some ogres become laborers. They're just they're strong, so they lift heavy things. Some of them are adopted by like goblin gangs, and so they become like enforcers. Others become bodyguards. But they're kind of like a blank slate before they ex are exposed to culture. Uh, and they are given the long-lived trait and the pariah trait, which means they're an outcast. Um, they also can have the robust trait, but this is optional. You have to pay for it out of your ability, which makes them hardier, bigger, stronger, gives them damage reduction. And then you have goblins and goblins are crude little jerks. <laughs> uh, they're not necessarily evil like a D and D goblin, but they're, uh, definitely outcast. They have the short lived trait and the pariah trait, but they're useful because they will do the jobs that no one else wants to do. They will muck the sewers. They will climb on the scaffolding when it's 37 feet tall and it's not put together well. So they're tolerated, but they're not very welcome. And they have some cultural things about them that make them uh, undesirable, which again goes to that pariah trait. Uh, they can also have the survival instinct, but that's again a trait they have to pay for in character creation. So those are your four races that you can start with. The I absolutely love this section because I think that what this system does with races is better than almost any game that I've played in the sense that instead of like assigning some its innate quality to the race, such as your intelligence or your charisma or these things that can be different. It does just your race doesn't mean that you're less intelligent than something else or that you're more charismatic. It assigns these things that are more it's you're a good at bushcraft or you have contacts or you're a pariah. It's these things that have to do more with the culture that you're raised in. And it just makes so much more sense than a lot, how a lot of 
fantasy games have handled it in the past. And it's, it's really good. And it's really, um, I think because this game came out several years ago. I mean, this is at the forefront of when this conversation was starting to happen. And it just, it's, it's really well done here. Yeah. I think, um, I love these races as well. And I think you're, you're absolutely right, Tom, that the other thing that this, this approach, uh, gives you is immediately some story hooks and some things to try and explore. So the, the, the short campaign that I ran, the, the three characters, one was an ogre and two were changelings. And the backstory to the both changelings was different and we were able to explore, um, the situation where, you know, in one case, the human parents didn't want to get rid of the changeling because they, they loved it, but they were forced to by the town. And yet another one where the changeling was just kicked straight out. Um, and in my game, the, the ogre was adopted by a goblin who, who runs, uh, uh, an inn and named the inn after the ogre. So it's called the Inn of the Lonesome Ogre because they found this ogre just on the plot where they were settling uh, and building Granite Hole when they were first arrived. And then that's, that's where the, the campaign came from. But I love that. I think it works really well. My one concern, uh, which has come up is that in my game, one of the changelings is stronger than the ogre and the ogre is 10 foot tall, enormous thing. So that there's a thing there that doesn't work terribly well on the rules as written, but you could, you know, it's quite easy for a GM to probably modify the robust talent to, to up their strength at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Uh, so then we have traits and there are nine different traits. Most of these are based off of the uh, race that you choose. Uh, and they are contacts, which again, gives you the ability to basically roll a die and say, I know a guy and that guy can help you out of a situation. Bushcraft, which is like survival. You can live off the land. You can, you know, find water, food, set traps, that kind of thing. Uh, long lived and short lived, which have no role playing L or no mechanic elements. They're just role playing aids. If you're a character that lives a long time, you might make your character act differently than if you're a short lived race that only has got 20 years of prime life uh pariah which again you're just an outcast of society privilege which means you have wealth and influence then you have robust and robust is one of the three that have levels so you have a novice level an adept level and a master level and as you go up you get additional benefits so robust basically at the novice level you're big and strong and you have damage reduction at the adept level you're bigger stronger and have more damage reduction so on and so forth you have the shapeshifter ability, which again has the three different levels of you can change into just something other than yourself, or you can change into a specific person and try to imitate them. Uh, then you also have survival instinct, which again has the three levels of novice, adept, and master. Uh, and master. Then you have abilities. Now, I think the, where this game works is how you you choose the abilities and that's going to make your character who they are. Kind of like Tom was alluding to earlier, this is not a class system. So the abilities that you choose and how you build them together is going to define who your character is and what they do. So I'm just going to go over the chart. I know I'm going to be reading just for a minute, but I just, just to, I think it'll make more sense if I read them. We don't have to discuss them necessarily, but just to give you an idea of what these things are. There's, I think, 36 of these, and they also have a, in the chart that tells you what they are by just title and then which archetype is most often going to have them. Uh, so you have acrobatics, basically what it sounds like. You're nimble. You can move through squares. You can uh, avoid attacks. Alchemy, you can make potions. Backstab, you can do additional damage in certain situations. Beast lore, 
you know how to identify beasts of the forest through tracks and droppings, that kind of thing. Berserker, like a barbarian trait, you can go into a rage and do damage. Bodyguard gives you additional ability to defend others. Dominate is basically like intimidate in D&D. You can actually attack with your dominate score and cause the, your opponent to yield in battle, which in some of the barbarian clans is actually considered a high honor if you can beat your opponent without harming, harming them or killing them. Equestrian, you're really good at riding. You could do tricks and you know do better than just getting from point A to B. Exceptional attribute. This is the one I mentioned, Tom. You can use this trait to raise an ability score. Uh, okay. But as far as I've read, it's the only way to do it. I don't. There might be magic items. And I think it's quite expensive as well if you wanted to do that as a player. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Again, I didn't dig into that, so I don't know. But I know it's possible. Oh, that's boring. Nobody wants that one. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah. Faint. Um, basically, you can attack with accuracy rather than uh, your, or excuse me, with discreet rather than accuracy. Iron fist. You can add. You can use your strength to attack rather than accuracy. Uh, leader. Again, you can lead others. Charismatic lore master. Don't remember that one. Marksman. Better at archery. Man at arms is more like moving, skirmishing as you're attacking. Medicus is healing. You can heal on the battlefield. Mystical power. Now you can cast magic. There's a whole. There's multiple schools of magic and different things you can get, but this is what the this is like the trigger on whether or not you can do those things. Natural warrior, you can fight without weapons. Poisoner, you can craft poisons. Polearm mastery, you can use pole arms to their full effect. Uh, quick draw, you're more likely to get off shots first when initiative. Recovery, which I believe is like uh, self-healing in combat. Ritualist is another way you can do certain types of magic. Shield fighter, basically sword and board, you get additional benefits for using a shield. Uh, sixth sense, in the Forest of Davikar, sight doesn't always work. Sixth sense will allow you to sort of see and navigate and know what's around you. Sorcery, again, it gives you access to certain types of magic. Uh, steadfast, don't actually remember that one, so it probably does something. We'll get back to that. Uh, <laughs> strangler, you know how to use a garrote and kill people. Tactician, you are, you know, you can use tactics to your advantage. Uh, Theragy, which again is also a, tra- a magical trigger. Twin attacks, you can use basically two two different weapons at the same time. Two-handed force, you use a two-handed weapon to full effect. Witchcraft, wizardry, both are triggers for magic. And then witch sight, you can see people's shadows and, and their auras and get things from it. All right, I can't find it, I apologize. But there's one in here that I read where essentially... If you're being attacked by two opponents, you can cause opponent A to attack opponent B instead of you. Um, it's kind of like the, like old acrobatics. It may, may even be acrobatics, but I thought that one was really cool. So that was a very quick list, but it was still long. I apologize, but um, there's so many of them, and they do different things, and you can choose them as you you know get experience and as you start your character. That is how your character becomes your character. So I thought it was worth doing that. Hopefully you agree. Mm-hmm. So anything on abilities? No, I think you covered it pretty well. I mean, they are what defined you as instead of having these individual classes, you have these abilities that you can really use to customize your character how you want to. And and also the the, the three levels for each ability, uh, you know, the novice, adept and, and master, again, allows you to concentrate or focus in one particular area if that's something you particularly want to do. Like you say, customize your character how you wish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, so then that goes into the next section, which is, Dave, if you want to, mystical traditions, because a lot of people, when they play a fantasy role-playing game, they want to know what 
how does magic work in this world? And this is the section that talks about magic. Yeah, so there are there are five mystical traditions uh, in um, in Simbaroom, although the fifth one is uh, independent, so it's not necessarily a tradition in itself, but it's a it's a mystical approach. The other four are theurgy, which is the um, sort of religious magical tradition. And if you were a um, a priest of Prios or something, then that would be the school that you would almost certainly take. Then there's sorcery. Um, witchcraft, we've already mentioned witchcraft. And then wizardry. And they're all subtly different. And some of them have different um, ways of, of learning that, um, different schools that you would go to. So wizardry, the Ordo Magica are... Uh, is is your way to to becoming a wizard but not all um, mystics want to be tied to one of those schools and they can be independent the advantage of being in a proper school though is that each um, each school helps you reduce the amount of corruption that you gain as a mystic during your um, when you're casting or using magic and it's it's a key thing that we haven't talked about yet in the game which is corruption and how how the more you do stuff that is unnatural the 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 more that nature sort of stretches back against you and the more corruption you will you will receive but if you are a member of a school you get taught how to um cast some spells uh, do some rituals without gaining any extra any extra corruption which is really important um but the ind- independent mystic sadly doesn't have that benefit but they aren't limited, obviously, by the school's range of um, powers and rituals that you're allowed to use. So naturally, if you're a theurg, you are not going to be allowed to use um, dark witchcraft, for example. You might get taken off and burnt at the stake if you did do that. <laughs> so um, so there's pluses and minuses in both. Um, each school also has its own uh, view of corruption. So corruption isn't always bad. And um, I'm just going to read a little quote from the wizardry um, school about their view of of corruption. And according to the Ordo Magica, corruption is largely misunderstood, thanks to the sermons of hot-headed theurgs and the fairy tales of witches. It all comes down to a regulated response, a reaction that appears when a mystic uses his or her power to affect nature. This isn't different from a person jumping off the stern of a boat and simultaneously pushing the boat forward with the same amount of force that goes into the jump. If the jumper is reckless, he will drop into the water. If the jumper is careful, he will land on the dock with dry shoes. So whilst the effect of corruption is the same for everybody, and it's bad, you don't want to get a lot of it, the different schools bring a different point of view, a different role-playing aspect to that character about how they feel about corruption and how willing they might be to uh, to risk getting too much. I mean, just kind of... They're... I love how they have that different viewpoint of corruption. I think that the one of my favorite things was the sorcerer is that their whole idea of like they want to walk hand in hand with corruption. And it's just so just the different ideas and how they use it differently is super cool. And I think, yeah, it, it, it helps you drive the role playing of your particular character, which I love, which is, again, one of the things that's, that's again really good. We've we mentioned this before, you know, a lot of the way. They look at the writing of the book and the writing of the rules is about how does this tell a story? How does this give you an in to a story? What does this give you that's interesting to explore with your character? And and I love that about about this. 
All right, so let's move on to the next section. It's you again, Dave. Uh, this is the Game Master's Guide section and the Game Master's Rules. So as a Game Master, it seemed fitting that this would be a section you would cover because you've actually ran the game before. Yeah, that's fine. Um, that's absolutely fine. So there's three things um, briefly to cover here, I think. One is combat, and I won't go into any great detail. The second is corruption, which I think is really important. We do need to talk a bit about that. And the third is the optional rules that um, Yenring and Free League give with this game that help you um, customize the game to, to the level that you, you want it. Yeah, they're super, these optional rules are super cool. <laughs> like, I love them. There were, some of them make the game even deadlier than it already that's what is. I, that's what I love. <laughs> <laughs> so the first thing I was going to mention about combat is it's fast, it's down and dirty, it's deadly, it's very easy to get killed very quickly. And this is a deliberate um, move by uh, Mateus and the, and, and the others because they wanted to get away from the idea that you have in Dungeons and Dragons, say, where you see a room full of skeletons, you pull out your sword or your mace, charge in, and you bash them until they all fall over. In this game, if you do that, the first skeleton's going to turn around and cut you in half. And so it drives a much more... Uh, much more... You have to think a lot more. You have to be a bit more tactical about how you go about dealing with those kind of situations, which is great. And I think it pushes it in absolutely the right direction. There's also one of the other things that they've done really well here is um, there's a very handy quick guide for combat. So I'm not going to go through it all in, in, in here, but it is, it's really quite simple. It's really quite straightforward. I think the one thing um, that I would, I would mention, uh, in the rules as written, if a, um, an NPC is doing damage against you or they are taking damage from you, um, to, to adhere to the player-facing element of the game, the damage that they will do is set and the damage that the armor will mitigate is set. That's fine to a point, because the the thing I found as a, as, as a GM for this was it, it became very quick. Um, the players aren't stupid. They very quickly realized that that ogre hit me and did three points of damage with that attack. I can take three more of those. Whereas it, it took away that element of uncertainty. So in my games, I changed it and I rolled the damage caused by... Um, NPCs against the players, so that's the only thing I would I would sort of comment on there. So I would mention because this comes up a lot. I see this on Facebook and Reddit all the time about uh, people wanting a game where armor is damage reduction, and this game has armor as damage yeah. reduction. So if you have certain type of armor, you roll a D four and you subtract that much damage from every hit. Other armor is D six. I think it goes up to D eight. Yeah. Uh, so that does add some variability there. So the ogre might do five damage, but if you roll well enough, it could be one or it could be zero or it could be five. Uh, so there is an element of that. That's but fair, again, yeah. it's, it's player facing. Uh, some people like that. Some people don't. I just, I, I, because it is different than d and &E, I still imagine a lot of the people listening to this, that's their touchstone game. This is a damage reduction system, but it's variable. It's not like, you know, like in Cypher system, armor subtracts two always at a certain level. This is a D4 or a D6 or a D8. I don't know if it goes higher than that. It probably does with an ability or something. Mm. Yeah, I think I think that's that's fine. I think my, my concern was simply that the, 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 the rules for doing it NPC against player is different from player against NPC. And I quite like the variability. Sure. Um, I'm, I'm with you. I like so, the roll dice too, but I just, I, I thought the damage reduction was a good yeah. point to throw. Yeah. Yeah, cool, cool. Um, Moving on to corruption. So corruption is 
uh, endemic in the game. And it's something that as a player you cannot ignore, particularly if you're a mystic. But not just, because there are other means of, of gaining corruption other than just by casting spells or rituals. Um, sorry, powers or rituals. Um, dangerous places will emanate corruption. and You will gain corruption just by being there. And certain artifacts that you, you might find if you're lucky enough to live long enough in Davikar, they'll potentially give you corruption. But there are two types of corruption. You have temporary corruption. And if you take temporary corruption, it may be fine. So it depends how much temporary corruption you take in one scene. And if that goes over a certain threshold, you then start taking permanent corruption. And you can't take very much permanent corruption before you start demonstrating the effects of that corruption. And it doesn't take a lot more before you start getting to the point where you become a beast. Um, what it does is introduce a, a really um, sort of tense element, uh, particularly in combat or life-threatening situations, where um, a, a character has cast a couple of spells, he's gained a little bit of uh, temporary corruption, but things are going badly wrong. But if he casts one more spell, he might get permanent corruption. He might already have permanent corruption. So again, the thing I love about it is it drives a thought process in the player about risk, benefit, you know, how far do I push it? Um, it's dangerous to be reckless uh, in those kind of situations. And it works really well. Um, it also sets a limit on how much spell casting you can do. So you can't just sit there spamming fireballs or magic missiles. <laughs> yes. Um, you have to choose carefully what spell you cast and when you cast it. Yeah, I love the idea of corruption. It gives the whole idea that there is a true cost to magic. It's not mm. just that the cost is a spell slot. It is like <laughs> something fundamentally is going to change about your character. It gives even more, it makes damp, it makes magic more, this more damn it this more dangerous kind of elusive element to the game i love it yeah so cool so uh with that said is the it's the next section which is kind of the the campaign rules and adventures like how to how, how to run a simbrum campaign and it's this is pretty straightforward because they do such a good job in the previous sections talking about what is the what is this world and everything so this hits some touchdowns it's really short and what they talk about is three pretty important elements of the game which is traveling how do you get around and what you may find in these different regions money all right how the economy works and this is probably one of my only complaints about this entire game Okay, because typically with economies in games, um, usually they'll like bring them up right at the beginning of the book. And I don't know if I'll ever be happy with this. They'll bring them right up at the beginning of the book. And I'm like, I don't care about this money. Tell me about this cool history. And then, or like this, they'll put them in the very back because it's not the important stuff. But reading the first part of this book, they keep on mentioning stuff like Thalers and stuff. And I'm like, what does this even mean? How does this mm -hmm. apply? And so, but they we finally get into what is the economy of the game. And then briefly, it talks about artifacts, which I was actually wishing that there was a little bit more here because they talk about throughout this game, you dive into these ruins and you find artifacts to bring back, to sell, or to use. 
and they don't include too many artifacts. They talk about what makes a good artifact so you can create your own and how the corruption is is dealt with with artifacts and there's some a few more artifacts in the back of the book but i do wish that there was some more here there is a um some adventure packs um which came out well must have been you know right when this first was published in english uh 2015 2016 that that cover some of that off that do okay. have um rules around treasure hunting and have a greater range of uh, of artifacts but i totally get your point tom that i think it, it's not unreasonable to expect a slightly wider variety of these are the kind of things you might want to use and here's 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 a bunch for you to go and play with uh before you're you know before you get around to making up your own yeah because i did think that there should have been more just because there's so much about this game that is about adventurers diving into these ruins to find stuff and then it doesn't include stuff to find. It's like, <laughs> what? Yeah. So give me a magical chalice or a black evil black sword or something. <laughs> I, but okay, I have. I will say this: I am a sucker for magic items, which I've said multiple times. I love yeah. just books of magic items. So this is something that if anybody's going to notice missing, it's me. <laughs> All right. So the last section here is monsters and adversaries. It's also a pretty slight section. And my initial reaction was, this is not nearly enough. Like, uh. again, you, you compare it to, uh, well, you know, D&D has a full book that's nothing but monsters and adversaries. Cypher system has a very extensive uh, bestiary as well. People love monsters. But thinking about Simbarum for a moment, you don't want to fight much stuff. This isn't a D&D <laughs> game where you're every, you know, every time you sit down to play, you expect to have three fights. You sit down to play, you hope to survive the one fight. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that you need as much so that, you know, it, it kind of lessens it a little bit for me. I still would have liked to have seen more. And it, there, I don't know if, I don't know if there are rules in here about creating your own. I didn't see them, but I may have missed them. Maybe in adventure packs, I'm assuming there's more monsters. Uh, but they break them down into different sections. So you have your elves, because if you're going into Davakar, you're probably going to run across elves. Uh, they do a very interesting thing where they, they categorize them by spring, summer, or autumn elves, which I believe is based on when they were born. And they have distinct personalities, or certainly can, based on that, which I thought was interesting. Uh, you have three different types of trolls, and trolls are bad. You don't want to fight trolls, and you certainly don't want to fight the bigger trolls. Uh, <laughs> then you have a bunch of different human adversaries. So you have your cultists, your brigands, your rangers, your witch hunters, which are basically witchers from the show, uh, treasure hunters, and then clan warriors. Uh, you have, um, in the book it says spenders, but I think they're supposed to be spiders. I think that's actually a typo. Um but maybe not. Maybe it's just different. It says words. spiders. I've got the newer digital copy, and it says spiders. Okay, so in my book, it says <laughs> it says spinders in one place and spiders in another. Uh, so, but um, you have sp- spider in Swedish is spindle. Okay, so, that's, so that I guess there was um yeah translation. <laughs> so you have edder heads, which I, my first thought was edder caps from D anD. d That is not what these are. These are like little flying spiders, and they're evil and kill you. And then you have uh, trickle stings, which are like wolf-sized spiders that lay traps. So also not good. Uh, <laughs> then you have your predators. These are like actual animals. You have ma- mare cats, biogorn, which are like souped-up dire bo- or, uh, boars, uh, I think. And then a boar. Uh, reptiles, <laughs> like a lindworm, which is a giant like snake. 
winged creatures, dragonflies, abominations, which are like this dark blight affected creatures. And then you have four undead from a frost light, which is kind of like a will of the wisp to a crypt walker, which is like a, like an undead warrior you know, you'd find in a crypt. Uh, so there's definitely enough here to get started. And there's definitely enough to set up quote unquote boss battles when this is like the big, you know, campaign ending or, or final treasure getting boss. But just coming from a D and D world, this feels like this could be a, a bigger area or, give you more rules for creating your own creatures shouldn't be too hard because you can take how you build a pc and give them abilities and then you just have to set up what their armor is and stuff but i would have liked to see more here yeah that's a fair point and um similarly to the the treasure point a moment ago they did bring out a uh, another book called the monster codex which doesn't help you if you've just got the core book but if you're if you're interested go and get it because it is excellent and that's got it's it's not packed it's not packed full of monsters like the monster manual but it's got 15 18 20 um uh, new creatures and new new adversaries and it's just brilliantly done and the way they set it out and they set out things about their motivation and about how they would react tactically in combat and all this kind of stuff as well it's really good i when i first got it i was planning a game and i opened to the first page and there's a monster there called an arak and I read through it and I loved it. I didn't get any further because I used that one in the <laughs> in the game. So it's a great book. But as as uh, you know, I totally get that um, if you've only got the core book, that doesn't help you much. Yeah. So it definitely there's not a lot of monsters, but this is a very dense chapter because they include a lot about each monster and they yeah. give they give story elements how these creatures fit within the for the Davakar forest. So it's really cool. So you could really almost use these. I love this is the section where we actually talk about elves and. I love how they use elves here. And I think, Michael, you said that their season is based on when they're born, but it's actually their, where they are in their life cycle. So oh, okay. elves go and they, they basically start out as spring elves. They hibernate. They come out as summer elves. They hibernate. They come out as autumn elves. And then nobody knows if they, if they hibernate again and become winter elves. So because mm. nobody knows if they're these, so there's these, it's just the elf section is really cool. There's all these various story elements to to grab from. So this was, it was super cool. I love it. Coming back to um, a point about uh, ogres that we mentioned earlier, Mike, um, there is, although I don't think it's in the core book, there is an explanation about where ogres come from, but um, I won't mention it because that might be a spoiler for somebody uh, down the line, but there is an explanation. And, and it's very interesting. Ogres are like onions. Smelly. <laughs> okay nice all right so we're, we're running not really long we're, we're i want an hour and a half we're right there so let's move right into our ratings and reviews um so basically we're going to again rate it and review it on multiple elements and then we will give an overall score so tom can you lead in those because i forgot to put that on my paper okay <laughs> yeah no absolutely so the first thing that we typically talk about is the art and the layout so the way we're going to do this is we're going to basically do this almost like a a round robin style. So we're going to start with Dave. Will, just so you all know where you're going to come in the rankings. All right. So we're going to let Dave go first. Then I'll go. And then Michael will go. And then, so this is good for me. I'm always going to be in the middle. And then 
and then on the next thing, Michael will go first, and then me, and then Dave. You know, I'm try- I'm always trying new things with this, all right? <laughs> so not to surprise anybody. So that's where we're going to keep on going up and down like that. So the first thing is the the art and layout. And Dave, if you have my little metric that I put together I do, for yes, this. I all do. right. So this is very, um, it, it only goes down to C minus because we would never talk about something that we absolutely hate. Like this is, <laughs> it's all, it's all, but even though it does say hard pass on it. So, <laughs> so I've got. Yeah. It's still bad. So it's like, um, these are kind of my metric there. And Can you so, send me that really quick? I actually don't have that. I was trying to find it. And I can't even find an email where I... Michael, I it's in your it's in your layout that you sent. Yeah. Uh, I only printed the first page. That's oh, page my word. I, I, I can get, I can get it. <laughs> no, no, no. I am going to give it to you right now. And you're going to leave this section in the podcast. So people know how <laughs> um, basically prepared that I am and how unprepared you are. Except I will say this for our audio only listeners. You don't realize that Michael has set up. I just sent it to you on Twitter, Michael. But you, you don't realize that Michael went to the lengths <laughs> to set up his green screen with the Simbarum book cover behind him. I'm very proud of him, the techno- technological leaps that he's taken over the last few months. But um, yeah, we'll leave it at that. He's forgiven every transgression for that Simbarum <laughs> Absolutely. banner. For, Absolutely. Exactly. For the green screen. All right. So, Dave, let's start with art and layout. Where would you, where would you rank this? <laughs> um, the art is perfect. The layout is excellent. It's got some really good uh, aids in there. Um, a plus. A plus. All right. And I'm going to follow that with also an A plus because this game, like you said, the art is what originally grabbed me. And as a sucker for good layout and design, nobody does it better than Free League. Yeah. They, Swedish RPG companies, I mean, this, I mean, everybody knows that the Swedes know design and they <laughs> know design in role playing games. It is, I love it so much how it's laid out. It's easy to read, easy to use, easy to follow. So solid A plus. Sorry, Michael, but you're gonna have to take us down or stay with us. Here. <laughs> All right. So art is A plus. Again, I think I again I love this art. It's some of the most evocative art in any RPG book I own. It absolutely sells the world and tells you exactly the feeling you should get playing. I thought the layout was really good, but it wasn't I don't know. I, maybe because I'm ignorant of it, I don't know how good it is. So I would give the layout an A. So I'm going to lean to A plus because the art's just so good. Okay, fantastic. Okay, so now the next section is let's give our ranking for the fluff. All right, the fluff is the the world. It is also not just the world, but also does this game give you enough story hooks and adventure hooks to use properly? So Michael, uh, you start. It's an A plus. Okay. This this world is so fast. It every again, like I said before, every section I read filled my mind with story hooks. Like I was ready to start running a campaign off of a paragraph about one clan of the of the barbarians. I was ready to run a campaign off of one section of Thistlehold. Like it just it could not be more jam packed unless there was just a an index in the back that was just like a hundred plot hooks. I loved it. <laughs> Okay, so I'm going to go next. All right, and I'm going to bring us down. Okay, okay, but for a very interesting reason. All right, I'm going to give it a B, all right? And I'm, I'll decide uh, if it's interesting. The reason that oh. it's a B is because they didn't give me enough, all right? So, oh, my God. So I love it, but the thing is, there were, which is I understand why they did this. It was by design. They wanted you to fill in the gaps, but me, I want like a I want the creation story, and I want what happened to Sibbar, and they don't give it to me right here. 
but that's because they want you to come up with it. And I know that there are other supplements that they kind of dive into this stuff. But the fluff here is so good. If you like dark, gritty, moody games and stories, this is for you. Uh, so, Tom, um, I think you will find that uh, a lot of that stuff that you are crying out for will be uh, explored in the uh, Throne of Thorns campaign, which is um, on its third book. I think the fourth book is coming, and uh, I think there's due to be a fifth. So I suspect it's not in this book because it's going to be articulated through that campaign. Yes. Um, so that means you're giving an A then instead, are you? Oh, maybe. Okay. <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. Um, so I'm giving it an A, and not an A+, on the grounds that compared to um, possibly one of my favourite games of all time, Cor- Coriolis, it hasn't got quite the same level of that kind of information as Coriolis does. But compared to just about everything else, it would be an A+, but I'm going to give it an A, just to try and prove that I'm not totally and utterly biased. <laughs> yeah, you know what? You're like, you're like, for, for anybody from Freely, whoever would listen to this, you're like, you know what? You don't get an A+. Plus. You go and get an A today. <laughs> Take that to the bank. Okay. So, no. So, Dave, the next thing. All right. You're going to start here. This is the crunch. All right. The rules. How would you rank the rules here? So, I love them on the whole. Um, I, I, I would be giving it an A for simplicity, flexibility, um, threat, danger. Um, but I'm going to drop that to an A minus simply on the grounds of what we talked about before around the player facing element, where I think that for some GMs and for me, that takes a little bit away from the experience. So I'm going to go down to A minus. Okay. I'm also going to agree with you, A minus, although I do really like the idea of um, all player facing. There is the whole idea of, and this is, this is tricky because I don't know if it's a fault of, it's not necessarily a fault of the game, but I think it's a fault of RPG culture and where we are in the sense that this is very different than any other it's different these player facing rules are not something that people are necessarily comfortable with so i would find this this potentially hard to run at a one shot or trying to introduce this to people who may only be familiar with dungeons and dragons so that's what i'm saying it's not necessarily a a, a fault of the game but because it shares so many similarities with other fantasy rule sets um just having that difference there um, is enough to kind of take it down to an A minus for me. I think the one thing I would add is it's very, very easy as a GM to make it slightly less player facing and mm. give me what I need as a GM. Um, but yeah, cool. No, I think that's a good, that's a good point to bring up that it, it the rules are flexible. So yeah, Michael. All right. So I'm bringing this down. I'm going to initially say it's a B for me. Okay. Like, that's still really good. I, I think the system works. It's, you know, it, it does what it does. Um, it is a little confusing. Again, I played it one time, but I remember their confusion that a 15 is a plus five, but it's actually a minus five because it's five higher than 10 and higher is better, but you subtract because you want to get, like, you got to the point where it was simple math, but I'm like, I'm so confused. 
but it does what it's supposed to do. It, it's not overly complex. I also would like to roll as the GM, so I'm not a huge fan of that. But I'm going to give it a B plus overall because I still feel like that rolling under fits this world perfectly. Mm-hmm. So to me, that bumps it up to a B plus. Okay, perfect. Um, so the next section is this is our 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 overall factor. This is how would you rate this game, and also you can include inc- you can include if this is something that you would even want to run or if it's so good that you want to play this game or run it so we're going to start with michael uh i would like to run this game but i would like to run a lot of games i just (laughs) don't have time i don't get to but i absolutely would love to play uh like a longer like maybe not a campaign but like a three or four shot Mm. you know like like maybe just everybody almost like a dcc funnel like everybody gets three characters and we're just going straight into davikar until we get to the center and if anybody survives, great. If everyone <laughs> dies on the way, that's the way it ends as well. Uh, but I would like to have a character explorer, Davikar. Uh, I would give it an A. Again, I think the art is amazing. Layout's good. The rules are fine. Um, yeah, I want to play this game a lot. A, okay. a for me. Okay, so myself. I first saw this book, and I start flipping through the pages. And then there's a piece of art that shows a very... Um, a very forlorn and angsty looking figure standing on a roof with a grappling hook and a hood. And I was like, yeah, this is the best game that's ever been created. <laughs> and so, so this game, it is, it checks all of the boxes for what I want in a game. And this is easily going to get an A plus for me. I love this. I love the, the, the darkness. I love the, the, the secretive elements of it. I love how well this game handles um, the cultures within this game and so it's gonna get a plus and michael i will keep you posted because i love this game so much and i'm gonna be running forbidden lands soon for my home group so i'm like play that too i'm knee deep in free league games right now so i actually am looking at running a four to five session just kind of ha- for fun game at this online and i will let you know when i do this because you can have I, a seat there in, and also speak that big al is supposed to run a game of aliens for us as well oh, <laughs> man we were I love it. All right, so A plus for me. So, all right, Dave, overall, we know you play this game, so close us out here. Um, I I agree with everything that you've both said. Um, I, the only comment I will add is having run it, it created three of the most interesting characters that I've seen in a fantasy game that I've played in uh, or GM'd for a very long time. And a lot of that is thanks to the the game system and the background and the fluff a plus a plus you you <laughs> you heard it here you heard it here first from dave with the effect podcast somebody who runs an actual play of this game that he loves it so okay and there so, will be links to his show in the show notes so please go check that out uh and then just before you wrap us up tom we were also going to talk about the promised land which is an adventure included but we're running long on time so i cut that out there is a short adventure included in the book and the trial that we ran back in 2015 is of that adventure which again will be in the show notes so if you want mm-hmm. to listen to that uh, we ran two thirds of it uh, for time. Scott cut off the third part, but uh, there's an adventure teaches you how to play. It's you know it's it's a basic included adventure in an RPG. Starts off small, shows you how the rules work, and then it ends with a what could be a campaign launching uh, aspect. So, okay, just just so people know that it is in the book. Fantastic, and Dave, thank you so much once again for joining us today. It's been my absolute pleasure, guys. Thank you for the invite. Yeah.
Yeah, no problem. But before we get out of here, we're going to include all of your information in our show notes. But for some of our listeners who may not have heard you before, um, go ahead and tell us where we can find you on social media or where we can listen to your podcast. Yeah, cool. Um, So the podcast is effectpodcast.org, but that's effect spelt the Swedish way with a K (laughs) rather than a C. Um, We've also just launched a uh, actual play channel, which is effectap.org. And we are just putting up on there the actual plays of an alien scenario that I did and ran um, back in the last year. We're also on Facebook, but as the Coriolis effect, because for some reason they won't allow us to change that to effect. Um, We're also on Twitter, uh, the Coriolis cast. And uh, you can get to me, Dave, at effectpodcast.org if anybody wants to send me any messages or any questions or any thoughts or ideas for the podcast, then please do so. We talk about Swedish games mostly. Um, we're, we're very much obviously in with, with the Free League. And as I said, I had the, uh, you know, the, the luck and the pleasure to, to write for Alien, which is absolutely fantastic. So when one of your characters is getting head bitten and killed by an alien, you've got me to thank for that. So <laughs> like, ah. That was Dave. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, come and have a listen. It's uh, uh, we we put out a magazine program about every three weeks, and then we intersperse that with actual plays, which which are which are recordings of old geezers playing the games and having a laugh. These aren't sort of professionally done with music and with sound effects. It's just a lot of old players enjoying themselves. Exactly. And then you also have several, you've got some interviews on there and all sorts of stuff. I've started going through your backlog. And absolutely, if anyone here wants to hear more about Swedish RPGs or Fruit League games, definitely check out the Effect podcast because you all do have a good production quality and everything that we love. So thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we do have an interview on there from back in 2017 when we first met Matthias Lilia and Martin talking about Simbarum. So you can get it from the horse's mouth there if you want you to go. go and listen to that interview. Fantastic. And thank you, you. Thank you very much, guys, for having me on. Yeah, no problem. And as always, you can follow me at BezcarTom over on Twitter. And Michael, close us out. Uh, you can find me and everything I do at the RPG Academy. Uh, if, if you're listening to this, you already know who I am, so check out our stuff. <laughs> uh, and uh, if there's a book that you would like us to review, let me know. I can't guarantee, but we are looking for additional products to review. Some will be brand new as they come out. Others will be things like this that we just have an interest in for some reason. Uh, but no matter what you do, remember, Tom. Oh, oh yeah, me. Oh yeah. If you're having fun, you are <laughs> doing, doing it right. Right. There you go. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast. We do this show out of love for the hobby and the desire to be ambassadors, welcoming more people into this community. All of our website content will always be free to use and utilize. But there are expenses related to the show. And if you enjoy what we do here, then please consider supporting us in some way. You can do so as simply as rating or reviewing us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. If you're going to purchase anything through Amazon or DriveThruRPG, consider using our affiliate links first, and then we'll get a small percentage sent back to us. You can do a single direct donation through PayPal using the paypal.me slash the RPG Academy. Or consider joining our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash the RPG Academy. And for a donation as low as $1 a month, you'll get access to lots of extra goodies, including bonus minisodes, invites to monthly one-shot games, one-sheet adventures, and more. 
Please consider following us on Twitter and Facebook or join our Discord where we like to try to keep the conversation going with our fans as best we can and are always looking to talk and chat more. Or do none of that. Just continue to listen and enjoy our show. Because honestly, that's enough. Thanks. And remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. We'll see you next time. The music used for our intro and outro is Fly a Kite by Spectacular Sound Productions, used under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike License.